Welcome to Nero Knowledge. Dr. John Sharbeck is an assistant professor in the Department of Law and Justice Studies at Rowan University after spending the last three years as an assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. John's research interests center on American policing with specific focuses on environmental and organizational influence on officer behavior and attitudes, as well as contemporary issues in the field, such as the Ferguson effect, de-policing, the war on cops hypothesis, race and officer-involved shootings, just to name a few. He has worked collaboratively with various law enforcement agencies conducting evaluations. His work has appeared in a number of peer-reviewed outlets, such as Criminology and Public Policy, the Journal of Criminal Justice, and Crime and Delinquency. He has also written op-eds for the Washington Post, the New York Daily News, and the El Paso Times. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Nero Knowledge. Uh, we are interviewing John Sharbeck today of Rowan University in New Jersey. Uh, how are you doing today, John? Pretty good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Thanks. So what we were talking about, we, I do this almost every time now. It started with Laura in the first episode. The uh, We start talking and it's great material to even just have in the podcast. So um, having you today, some of the stuff that we were just discussing is data and some of the studies, especially the crowdsourcing. So um, what I wanted you to, to discuss was your uh, involvement in a, a study going over the crowdsourced material by Wall Street Journal and the officer-involved shootings. Um, 2014, right, was the, the data? Um, the Washington Post data started in uh, 2015. 2015, okay. So go over some of that. What, was, what drew you, I guess, to that information and, and to get going on the, the study you did? So what was it uh, that you studied and how did you go about uh, getting involved and interested in bringing that information forward? Sure. So the goal of the study, which is online in the Journal of Criminal Justice, um, the, the main goal was to examine racial and ethnic disparities in officer-involved shootings, asking the central question, are African-Americans really overrepresented in officer-involved shootings? Um, so one of the, the, the crucial turning points happened in, in 2015, when at the start of that year, um, the Washington Post, The Guardian, these uh, journalistic internet crowdsourced data sources began fully capturing the number of people who were killed by police. Um, and, and what the Washington Post and The Guardian and those, those types of data sources found was that 25% of those who were fatally shot by US police are black, while black Americans only make up about 13% of the US population. Um, so when you compare those two numbers, it suggests, at least by some people, um, more activist groups like uh, Black Lives Matter and Campaign Zero, it suggests that this is evidence of, of racial bias, that blacks are two times more likely to be shot and killed compared to their makeup in the general population. Mm -hmm. So the goal of our paper was simply to critically assess those types of statements um, and examine you know, are there racial disparities in these officer-involved shootings? Right. So with their material, what was the post just giving the uh, the raw data or were they also trying to 
um, elicit their own results out of that data for the public? I think their primary purpose was just to catalog the population of people who are fatally shot in any given year. Um, so they just wanted to bring um, the totals, they wanted to parse that out based on the racial and ethnic breakdown. Um, so I think in that vein, it was largely just to to provide the public with with knowledge that was sorely needed. Um, and we could get into some of the flaws of, of the official data, um, things from the FBI and the Bureau of Justice Statistics and the CDC, which basically undercounted the number of people who were fatally shot each year by about 50 percent, hmm. um, which is a problem. We're, we're missing out on 50 percent of those people who are killed in any given year, yet they're not appearing in, quote, official statistics captured by the federal government. Hmm. Um, so I think part of part of the Washington Post and The Guardian and mapping police violence, part of their goal was just simply to shed light on you know, this is the big picture, um, but they they do seem to have taken, you know, a more activist role in categorizing some of these fatal officer-involved shootings. You know, they, they a big part of it is armed versus unarmed, and there are more problems associated with the way that they categorize things as opposed to just the population of people who are, who are fatally shot in any given year. Okay, so when you say categorizing, were they then not defining um, to some sort of uh, accuracy of what each uh, um, field, in a sense, would be in terms of, yep, somebody was shot, this is what their race was, this is what their ethnicity was, this is how we define each of those. Um, is that what uh, what some of so, the issues were? So those, those were fine in terms of like the categorization of, of the fatality and, and the race or ethnicity of the citizen. The biggest problem that has come to light is how they arrived at their categorization of unarmed versus armed. Hmm. So there are a number of cases, a, a non-trivial portion of cases in there where citizens are categorized as unarmed if they had a toy gun or if they were engaged in other assaultive behavior on an officer that didn't necessarily involve a weapon like a, a gun or a knife. So there are cases in there where there's a struggle going on between an officer and a citizen, and the citizen attempts to disarm the officer, tries to grab the gun, the officer then shoots and fatally kills that person, but they're still considered unarmed, yeah. which raises a, a lot of problems um, in when someone sees that and, and just accounts for that person as being unarmed, as if they were not a threat um, in that situation to the officer. Now, did they have any level? Because I know this is something that seems to be lost since you're talking about this already is the, the like you said, the threat, um, in a sense, a, a threat assessment that takes place by the officer at that moment, whether there's a weapon or not. Um, to their own life or the, you know, some danger to the life of the community or some life in the community, excuse me. It, it, is there anything that was in that data set that uh, brought that forward, that threat assessment in a sense? Um, not, not in plain sight. So if you go onto the, the, the Washington Post uh, website and you look at their data, you could search by armed versus unarmed. But you would really have to start getting into, you know, the links that they provide, 
whether they be newspaper articles that, that explain the event in more detail. Um, but, but definitely some problems if you're not um, a consumer of this knowledge and you're not taking a, a critical eye of it. It's very easy to take the Washington Post or mapping police violence's um, word for it that these people, these citizens were unarmed when in fact maybe they didn't have a gun or a knife, but if they had a toy gun, you know, maybe that officer perceived it to be a, a real gun or, yeah. you know, they were a threat trying to disarm an officer and, and take his or her firearm. So you, it, would, it would take some due diligence on the part of the, the consumer to actually decide whether or not that unarmed case should be categorized as unarmed versus whether it should be, you know, better categorized as not necessarily armed, but more of a threat than just an unarmed person running away who's shot in the back. Right, right. Yeah, it definitely seems as though there should be a little bit more to flesh out as opposed to just a, a true or false statement in terms of armed or unarmed um, to kind of to bring that level about. Now, I know we keep harping on the Washington Post, but uh, great uh, for them to kind of bring in forward the lack of data that's being tracked at that point in time for um, those situations. What else did you pull forward for the study um, outside of the Washington Post? I know you mentioned uh, UCR and NIBRS um, and CDC. Um, if you can go into some of those and what you were looking for in that. Yeah, exactly. So um, just to kind of piggyback off of, you know, what the study did, um, what, what our aim was, so we, we were looking at the research up until this point, and we discovered that there were two primary flaws in the, the discussion, the dialogue surrounding race and officer-involved shootings and, and some of the early studies. Um, number one is that um, people were employing inappropriate benchmarks um, to, to examine racial and ethnic disparities. Um, a benchmark is simply a, a unit of comparison um, and uh, the primary benchmark that was used, at least among the general population in the media, was racial and ethnic distribution in the general population. And mm -hmm. when we compare that to the actual number of, of people who were fatally shot, there, there are those discrepancies. You know, 13% African-American population in the, in the U.S. versus 25% of those who were fatally shot. Um, so... Uh, primary issue number one, the use of inappropriate benchmarks, um, assuming that everyone in the general population has an equal chance of coming into law enforcement, assuming that everyone in the general population has an equal chance of being in a, a scenario, a situation where officers can use deadly force, that is simply wrong. And we need a, a better benchmark, a better unit of, of comparison. Mm. Um, and number two, um, the Washington Post data, The Guardian, mapping police violence only categorizes a small piece of the pie, fatalities. And, and um, police use of deadly force is, is much broader than just people who, who die. Uh, deadly force, by definition, is any physical force that is capable of or likely to kill. It doesn't always kill. So anytime an officer intentionally discharges his or her uh, service weapon, and they hit and they only injure or they miss entirely, that's still a deadly force incident. Yet these newer data collection systems, which are much improved compared to official statistics, are only capturing the tip of the iceberg 
a very small piece of the deadly force pie. So um, our, our study wanted to address both of these issues, appropriate versus inappropriate benchmarking and the broader universe of, of officer-involved shootings. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect way to kind of balance that out as opposed to trying to, uh, like you said, take 13% and map it to the 25. And, and like you said, there's no no real match. It's almost apples and oranges at that point because it's two different populations that you, you're kind of dealing with at the same time, even though they may share the same race ethnicity value. And, and this is a problem, not just in policing research. I mean, it's broader than officer-involved shootings. It was a, a topic of contention starting in the 1990s when dealing with uh, racial profiling and disparities in vehicle and traffic stops. Um, whenever we use general population benchmarks, we always run into trouble um, mm. because you know we're not assessing threat, we're not assessing risk. You know, not everybody on not everybody drives. You know, so in in terms of uh, vehicle disparities, some racial and ethnic groups. Um, because of variations in socioeconomic status, might have older vehicles that have issues with taillights, um, unpaid registration, all types of, of things that might confound the relationship between race, ethnicity, and, 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 and the race and ethnicity of, of people who are stopped by police. Right, yeah. That's a, <laughs> it's interesting you say that too, just even, like you said, with the vehicles alone. I mean, that's... Uh, how would you, and you don't have to answer this, but just to put it out there, how do you uh, um, accommodate for such um, attempt to quantify something like that, right? So how many vehicles, even thinking about the record system I've used and seen and other ones I've seen, the only thing that you ever put in with a vehicle is, um, ends up being, you know, the, the make, model, year, the VIN number if you got it, the plate that goes on it, and maybe what they got pulled over for. Never is it anything beyond that where you could probably go back to that debt and be like, oh, well, this is the, this is the circumstance. Exactly. Um, so. Um, so in the 1990s, when the New Jersey State Police was being investigated for um, you know, disparities in, in vehicle stops, racial profiling, um, a guy by the name of Lamberth engaged in like a systematic social observation study where he drove up and down the New Jersey Turnpike, basically I-95, and he went the speed limit. And while he was driving up and down, he was categorizing the behavior of other drivers on the road. If he could see whether they were white, black, Hispanic, whether or not they were um, exceeding the speed limit, if they were within the speed limit, and, and using actual driving behavior as the benchmark rather than, you know, um, the racial and ethnic uh, distribution in the population or the racial and ethnic distribution among those of, of, of driving age 16 plus. Um, so you could use some systematic social observation. You could use traffic light cameras, mm. use um, at fault driver records. You could, there's a, there's a bunch of, more appropriate risk-related benchmarks that have come about after mm -hmm. the discussion of, of what do we use as the unit of comparison um, versus um, police behavior. That's good. Yeah, that was, <laughs> wasn't expecting that. That's awesome. I'm glad you had a study all ready to go for how, how that gets supported. It's perfect. Yeah. Um, so 
to get back to it, so these other data sources, what what did you find in those? And I guess what are the the flaws in those? I guess even because they're almost not more authoritative, but uh, you know, allegedly coming from your government, they should be pretty thorough and ready to go. Um, wh- what did you find? What did you go after? What did you find? And and what were the pros and cons? I guess therein. Okay, so so for that study um, in the Journal of, of Criminal Justice, we basically engaged in three separate studies. One looking at the national picture, national level data, and then we focused on Texas, and then number three we focused on California. And the the good thing about the the studies is that almost all of the sources where we got the data are publicly available, so anybody regardless of whether or not you're a researcher or you're just a curious um, citizen, a, a consumer of, of this types of, type of information, you could find almost all of this information online, um, open data sources, you know, all of this is good for replication, um, but, but almost all of it is available online. So for study one, we used the number of people who were fatally shot each year nationally based on the Washington Post's database. Um, and we compared that to the racial and ethnic breakdown of citizens who committed serious violence against law enforcement. Um, and the central source of that information was the FBI's LEOCA reports. LEOCA being an acronym that stands for Law Enforcement Officers Killed and Assaulted. Every year, the FBI collects data on the number of officers who were feloniously killed and injured and um, what the race and ethnicity of those perpetrators of, of serious violence against police are. Mm-hmm. Um, so directly comparing the racial and ethnic breakdown of those who are fatally shot across the country versus the racial and ethnic breakdown of uh, people who feloniously kill officers or seriously injure officers from a gun, a knife, or other cutting instrument. Um, so that was study number one, big picture, national level, small piece of the deadly force pie because we're only dealing with um, fatal officer-involved shootings. Right. Study number two um, took a, a more comprehensive look of officer-involved shootings, and it used a state-based accountability system out of Texas. So the Texas Office of the Attorney General um, is now in charge of collecting all officer-involved shootings where a citizen is either fatally shot or injured due to gunfire. Um, and, and that information is collected um, by the Texas Office of uh, the Attorney General. It's all publicly available on the Attorney General's website. And in addition to officer-involved shootings, it captures the race and ethnicity of citizens who shoot and kill or shoot and shoot and injure law enforcement officers. So similar to study number one, we're comparing the racial and ethnic breakdown of citizens who are shot and injured or killed by Texas police based on the racial and ethnic breakdown of citizens who shoot and injure or shoot and kill Texas officers. Hmm. Um, So getting a little bit broader, including um, injurious shootings rather than just fatal shootings. And then finally, study number three uh, uses, in my opinion, the best state-based accountability system that exists to date. It's in California. Um, it's called the California Ursus system, and it captures 
all instances where officers discharge their firearms, regardless of whether or not it's a, a fatality, um, an injury, or they just miss entirely. Um, and it, it also captures the same information for whenever a citizen shoots at law enforcement. Um, so again, comparing the racial and ethnic breakdown of all firearm discharges of police in the state of California to the racial and ethnic breakdown of, of citizens who shoot at California police. Yeah, it sounds uh, like a really thorough study, or uh, <clears throat> excuse me, thorough data collection by the state of California, just covering kind of all the bases, it sounds like. Exactly. And these, these state-based accountability systems, there are a few of them, and, and most of them, I guess, the, the impetus for them was the, the current social and political climate surrounding law enforcement since the summer of 2014 in the wake of Ferguson. Hmm. So in Texas, um, this system uh, started on September 1st of 2015. And I believe that the California system started uh, January 1st of 2016. So these are relatively recent developments in terms of these state-based accountability systems. Yeah, still fresh, but uh, and hopefully that they're um as with most data just collecting it it has already defined it and it's being pumped out thorough enough but it sounds like that's definitely what they're they're moving forward with understanding like you said with what happened in ferguson what needs to be uh, accounted for in the uh the day-to-day just another piece of what needs to be recorded with uh, interaction with police and the community um did you find because i i've seen this with Nibers coding and, uh, you know, officers sometimes struggle with it. The race designation always seems to be something subtly different. Was that something that you saw doing your study? And I guess my point being when people are classified as white, a definition by, um, I believe, even Nibers at this point is anybody of Middle Eastern and Indian descent um, are considered and put under the, the white um, category for race in, in that capturing. Is this um, something that should be? And I know science, I believe it's like 60, 70 years ago, tried to tell us, please don't categorize people by race. There's no such thing. It's really just skin color at this point. And ethnicity really is what the breakdown is. You know, it's more easily defined in a sense, but not uh, readily available to see within a person. I mean, we have people in the public eye that are of mixed races and what do you really classify them as? And that ends up being a problem when you are, you know, entering these reports sometimes, how do they classify? Right. So it's, it's a great point. Um, we found no way to really take this into account. So we basically took you know, the FBI, uh, the state of Texas, as well as the state of California's word for it, mm. you know, what, whatever a person um, was categorized as was kind of just taken as is, you know, right. if, if it said white, we, we, we addressed it as white. Same thing goes for black and Hispanic. Um, there, there were other categorizations like Asian Pacific Islander that were omitted from the analysis just because they represented such a, a small portion. But in, in California, Asians made up a, a little bit 
uh, more of the population. But for the purposes of, of our paper, the, the attention over the last few years has been placed specifically on African-Americans and to a lesser extent, Hispanic Americans. Mm. Um, but, but to answer your question, there was really no way for us to, to tease out those differences. We basically just went with whatever the data set uh, categorized that person as, as is that, right. that niece or ethnicity. But it's, it's definitely a problem um, once you get into, you know, biracial or, or mixed races, yeah. you know, what do you categorize someone who is half black and half white, you know, yeah. um, is the, is the officer doing that? Um, how does the person view him or herself in terms of, of this racial and ethnic designation? Um, and especially moving forward, um, I, I think that's an issue that needs to be addressed as more and more kids are being born in mixed race and eth ethnic families. Mm -hmm. uh, I think biracial kids were the largest, you know, growing group born over the last few years. So uh, time to make the change. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's always one that kind of plagued me when I see it and I cringe every once in a while. It's just it's because, like you said, who's making that designation? Like, what, what, who makes the choice, and why is it limited to such um, kind of old, old mentality in a sense? Since that almost doesn't really exist anymore. But yeah. um, so, as you went through this, you, you had all three of these studies. Did they basically give you the same same results across the board? So, so we tried to. Again, one of the limitations of, of prior research was um, inappropriate benchmarks. So we wanted to capture theoretically what is the most appropriate risk-related benchmark for an officer-involved shooting. Mm -hmm. um, and officers theoretically are only allowed to, based on you know the the Supreme Court and and a bunch of case law, allowed to use deadly force in you know largely defensive life situations when there's an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury to that officer or other you know bystanders um obviously this isn't always the case and there are certainly egregious scenarios where officers use deadly force when it's unwarranted i think the the most prominent case for for this over the last few years was probably um walter scott and mike officer then officer michael slager in north charleston south carolina where cell phone video captures Walter Scott running away, not necessarily posing a threat, yet he's shot in the back a number of times. Right. Um, so, you know, there are cases like that that don't necessarily fit that theoretical definition of, of what an appropriate risk-related benchmark is. But we looked at, in the first study, what is the racial and ethnic breakdown of citizens who have killed officers or seriously injured them with a weapon? Um, study number two, what is the race, racial and ethnic breakdown of Texans who have shot and injured or shot and killed um, Texas law enforcement? And then finally in California, what is the racial and ethnic breakdown of um, citizens who have shot at, you know, discharged a weapon, a firearm? at California uh, law enforcement. So comparing, you know, what we see in terms of fatal officer-involved shootings nationally, fatal and injurious officer-involved shootings in Texas, and all firearm discharges in uh, California, looking at what we can expect to see 
based on uh, physical resistance or even assaultive behavior, presence of a weapon um, versus what is actually playing out in these officer involved shootings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> so again, as we said, as I mentioned earlier, it's almost we took apples and oranges with uh, the, the post and some of the, the crowdsourced um, data sets. You picked out the federal, Texas, and California ones and started crafting uh, basically an apples to apples from what was really uh, kind of happening in these incidents, incidences, incidents, <laughs> all of the above, um, to kind of to, to pull forward your results. So out of all of these, what was the end result of these studies? So for study number one, looking at national level pictures, only fatal officer-involved shootings, we found that Blacks, African-Americans, were not more likely to be fatally shot when using the FBI's LIOCA data mm -hmm. as, as a unit of comparison. Um, so a lack of evidence that, that there's this over-representation that is being driven in some media circles among activist groups. Um, uh, African-Americans in study number two were not more likely to be shot and injured in Texas when accounting for um, the racial and ethnic breakdown of, of citizens who shoot and injure and shoot and kill Texas officers. Um, so a lack of disparities nationally, as well as a lack of disparity um, in Texas. Um, and then in study three, we actually found that blacks were more likely to get shot at by officers throughout the state of California when taking into account the racial and ethnic breakdown of citizens who shoot at California law enforcement. Um, okay. So a bit of a, a variation in the findings mm. um, with, with more attention needed to be given to what's happening in California. Um, and I've been asked this question, why, why can we expect to see different results in California? Um, the benchmark for for that study was citizens who shoot at law enforcement throughout the state but that isn't the only occasion where law enforcement officers can use deadly force um it could be that you know there are other scenarios where um different racial and ethnic groups pose a threat whether they be with a knife or they're physically assaultive with you know hands and feet and and you know, going for guns mm. um, that aren't necessarily captured in that very raw benchmark of shooting at officers. Um, so so it, it just shows that there are flaws in the benchmarks that are being used and that the results are largely indicative of the benchmark that is being used. Um, and in, in the conclusion of our paper, we liken it to the old phrase, beauty lies in, in the eyes of the beholder, that these disparities or differences in outcome across race and ethnicity may be a function of the benchmark used. Um, and then really it's just an argument as to what is the better ra uh, race, racial and ethnic benchmark. Um, so um, yesterday, the LAPD just released footage of an officer-involved shooting on November 25th of 2019, three days before Thanksgiving. And what they what it showed was a, a black man armed with a machete. He had just um, 
committed an armed robbery with that machete. He just carjacked someone and it had body cam footage and cell phone footage. The LAPD um, used, tried to use a taser, tried to use a beanbag. And then finally, the guy started approaching the officer. The officer started opening fire. I believe he missed and he was on the ground and the guy was wielding this machete almost about to to strike the officer when other officers on scene opened fire. Mm. Um, obviously, in that case, it showed a high degree of restraint on the LAPD officers involved in the shooting. But that instance right there wouldn't be categorized in the benchmark that we used since it wasn't a firearm that was being discharged against officers. So I encourage people who, who take a look at our findings in California to, to look at it with a grain of salt. If we incorporated you know, knife attacks or, or other physical attacks with hands or feet where deadly force is warranted, would we still see the, the disparities um, that, that are present in, in, the, in the analysis? Right, and now also just even bringing up that scenario, you have a, a level of escalation that um, comes into play as well. I mean, how does, how can we bring about this use of force when officer-involved shootings when there's a whole story that happens even before that circumstance? Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, and when we're dealing with the Washington Post and the Guardian and mapping police violence, what we're seeing is the outcomes, the end results of, of all of these encounters. Mm. And, and what we're largely missing is all of the steps that were taken up until that point. Um, who escalated? Was there an attempt to de-escalate? Um, what are what are the specific scenarios surrounding it? Was the was the suspect armed versus unarmed? What what actions were they taking? What actions were the, were the officers taking? So although the Washington Post, the Guardian, mapping police violence is an improvement in terms of just raw numbers of people killed each year, I fear that people researchers are using it because it's simply the new toy. You know, mm. it's the best that we have. And, you know, I'm guilty of it too, but rather than taking a, a critical look at, you know, the data, what are the flaws, what are the limitations, um, what are we missing from just this person was fatally killed, this person was shot, um, rather than taking this this uh, totality of, of the circumstances approach. Yeah, and it kind of leads perfectly into what I was about to ask you next too, where, um, people will go and utilize some of these these data sets and whether they're crowdsourced or um, even from a, a position of authority, whether it's the federal government, uh, Texas, California, we're really going to be asking ourselves, what is it that we're consuming? What is it we're looking for? And what is it that we're, we're attempting to um, ask of it? And can we really ask of that data set and get it to pull forward? So um, how do people who aren't familiar with you know, science and math and statistics um, not be a victim, in a sense, of the Washington Post and them putting out that kind of information, as you mentioned earlier, the 13% versus 25%, they may see something quick like that and go, oh, my God, this is, uh, this is terrible. Look at what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, you, make, you bring up a great point, you know, just like the flaws in terms of how the Washington, 
Washington Post categorizes like an unarmed versus unarmed versus armed, there is potential in these largely police-generated data sets since the data that are in you know the Texas system, the California system, are going to be based on officer accounts. Um, maybe there's there's a risk of you know officers reporting that they felt more of a threat when it didn't necessarily exist, you know, a, mm-hmm. a CYA type of action. Yeah. Um, and, you know, without body cam footage, without any other sources of data to independently verify that, we're largely left to just take these data sets word for it, um, which is, is a problem. And it's a flaw in, you know, data generated from, from the police. Um, so just like we need to be critical with the crowdsource, I think we need to also be critical about um, the police-generated data as well. <laughs> and I, I think it, it, it draws on, on a bigger issue is, is to be a critical consumer of any information that we do receive. You know, um, This starts early in life in school, and it should be a lifelong process. And it applies more than just policing research, more than just criminal justice related research. It applies to politics. Um, where do we get our information? What are the sources? And I think it's needed in today's day and age more than ever before. Um, you know, trying to understand where do these sources of data, if any, are being used? Can we verify things? Do other sources of data, do other data sets support what the one source of data has to say? Um, it really requires us to not take people's words for it, but but to view it in a very skeptical, um, critical lens. Yeah, it, and it's interesting because just as you were talking about that, I was thinking to myself, it's it, we put it out and we do need to question it. That's always been to me the, the question authority thing. It's not to question how somebody is necessarily running the country, but what sort of information is being used Um you know, knowledge is power, right? So how is that knowledge being uh, brought forward? What data is it? And are we trusting it to give us the information to then get us the knowledge to get us to where we're supposed to be? So we're now trusting groups of people, whether it's, you know, police and the politicians or the the, uh, society itself, when they do these crime, uh, victim crime surveys, when they do the census, we are trusting each other to fill that out to the best of our knowledge, get it out there so we can work with um, these kind of problems that kind of pop up of misinformation that comes forward from some of our media, uh, whether it's social media, whether it's the newspaper or um, uh, television uh, news anchor events and things of the like. You know, we're trying to collect this so we can make better decisions, but we got to trust that the people giving it to us has given it to us accurately and thoroughly enough to then proceed with making the decision. So it's an interesting uh, cyclical event that almost takes place. I know. And I I try to impart (laughs) this on my students. You know, I teach, you know, a number of different classes, crime control policies where we spend a day on gun control and it is so hard for me to find unbiased information to even mm. provide to the students um, just because, you know, take the number of people who are who die at the hands of guns in the U.S. every year. Well, some people include, you know, suicides in that number to try to inflate, 
you know, the number of, of gun homicides. Um, it, it's just a really big problem. Um, and I just try to impart to my students, be critical consumers of this information. Um, you know, be skeptical, be pessimistic about, about, you know, who's collecting it. Is there any type of spin that's being used on it? Um, can you verify it through other data sources? Um, and, and really this is a, a skill for, for people in life, you know, yeah. not just, uh, trying to understand criminal justice related issues. Yeah. It doesn't need to taint your positivity on life, but definitely be a little skeptical of, of what you consume. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so one of the questions that kind of came up when I was reading uh, the material and, and I, you touched upon it a little bit, but some uh, uh, research recently was attempting to provide this delay mechanism that's taken place um, with officer-involved shootings where the officer is hesitant to usually pull the trigger because of uh, the, the value of race at that point and what kind of um, media it might bring forward towards the, uh, the department and the community and themselves, obviously. What, um, it, was there anything that you wanted to speak to on that where um, obviously what you've found with these three studies isn't necessarily uh, what the media portrayal is or what others might be perceiving. So is there anything to that delay? And do you believe that it is because of this misinformation, if there is one? Yeah, so so that is the fear. And there have been a few highly publicized cases where this exact thing has happened. There was a case in Birmingham, Alabama, and another one in Chicago, Illinois, where officers basically got seriously injured by suspects and they failed to use the appropriate force needed and, and, and were left with, you know, pretty, pretty serious injuries. Um, and these, these cases were, you know, um, disseminated throughout um, the country, speaking directly to this issue of what do I do? Are officers failing to act? Um, mm when 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 the the scenario the, the the situations warrant it um i i'm not sure yet i don't know whether or not these are anecdotes um I'm, it's certainly possible that that type of mentality is taking place but i don't think that that's necessarily the norm um largely because when you look at the research on officer involved shootings and deadly force and what predicts these outcomes they're largely um, predicted by situational variables. So like some of the strongest predictors of why an officer shoots is an imminent threat, physical resistance, presence of a weapon. Those things continue after study after study upon decade after decade, find that those are the, the driving forces behind deadly force. Um, that in, in many cases, there isn't necessarily a lot of discretion on the part of the officer. They either act because of the the exigent circumstances, um, based on you know what they see and what they feel. Um, so I think in a vast majority of officer-involved shooting incidents, they're what um, Jim Fife used to call non-elective shootings. 
that they are defensive life scenarios and the officer has no choice but to shoot. Right. Um, and, and these, when you, when you really get into the case files, even when you look at the Washington Post data, the vast majority of people who are shot, the vast majority of people who are killed by police do pose a threat. You know, they have a weapon. Most of the time it's a gun. Um, in a number of cases, they've shot first, you know. Um, so so the, 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 the discretion on the part of the officer is limited. What, what really needs to be focused on in the future is trying to examine uh, department policies, officer-involved shootings across departments when they, are not, when they are elective shootings, basically when officers have more discretion, when they have a choice whether or not to shoot or not, um, to retreat and engage in other tactics. Um, and, and that, I think, is where the real problem lies. What, what our research, what our study do, did, and what most other studies do is they take all these officer-involved shootings, all these fatal shootings, as if they are all created equally, mm-hmm. um, when they're really not. You know, the scenarios, the situations do differ, and we need to look at not necessarily these non-elective shootings when there's so much evidence that the officer acted justifiably, appropriately. We need to spend more attention and try to identify departments, maybe officers who are engaged in shootings when when they are more elective, when they have discretion, when they don't necessarily need to shoot, but they, they shoot anyway. Um, and we, we need better data to try to capture whether or not a shooting was absolutely necessary versus could have been avoided. Yeah, no, that's great. That's actually... Um awesome point in terms of what really should be we rooted out is those elective shootings more than anything else exactly because because those are the problematic ones yeah. um, and and this isn't a new discussion um this was a paper that was written in 1982 when jim fife who is viewed as the godfather of deadly force and officer involved shooting research took a look at the nypd and the memphis pd and tried to categorize um, how often they engaged in non-elective versus elective shootings. And what we found was that the NYPD had a very restrictive administrative policy regarding officer-involved shootings. They were only able to shoot in defensive life scenarios. Once they did shoot, there was an automatic review. There was a lot of paperwork, whereas the Memphis PD had a much more laxed policy. And the NYPD was engaged in a lot of these non-elective defensive life shootings, whereas the Memphis PD was engaged in much more elective shootings. They didn't need to shoot, but they chose to do it anyway, rather than, you know, retreat or engage in less than lethal force. Um, so, so we need better data that include a description of the event, all of the stages up until the shooting to determine the level of discretion on the part of the officer, whether or not there was uh, uh, an immediate threat versus not. And if we could identify departments that engage in more elective shootings, maybe there's something that can be done from a training perspective, from an administrative policy perspective. Um, That's where the future of officer-involved shooting research needs to lie. Not this 30,000-foot view, which admittedly we kind of do in our paper, but you know, much more, you know, on the ground approach, examining each shooting on a case by case basis, what was happening, 
Was there escalation by which party did it occur? Was there de-escalation that occurred? Um, can we identify departments that have lax policies that allow for more of these elective shootings to take place? Yeah, it's almost a start in a quantitative realm in a sense and then pull forward the, the qualitative when you start seeing a, a maybe a threshold of that's being breached at that point to see what might be causing the issue and uh, start addressing that problem from there. Yeah. Um, so with that, you were talking about data. What uh, what can be done? Or what tips would you give, I guess, in a sense for uh, more enhanced data collection? Is it um, and being a records person and working with data a lot um, for me, actually, my mom helped me with this, which was great. It's like, mom, I'm going to get this job. And uh, but what it is, it's going to be a records job. What what's the best thing to do? And she said, Nick, the, the best thing to look at when you're dealing with with records, with data is have the question first. And basically start at the end so that way you can work your way back and flesh that whole thing out. Because if you know the question, if you know what the answers need to be, then you know what you need to do to uh, to get yourself there. So I take data collection similar um, to that realm of we need to know the question. Here's all the uh, little tidbits that get us to that answer. Exactly. And my advice for practitioners, police departments, would be to provide as much data as you can you know, be as transparent as possible. And I think this is a, a turn that's largely happened over the last few years. Um, over the last few weeks, I've, I've taken a look at the 30 largest uh, municipal police departments in the country, and about 24 or 25 out of the 30 provide information on their officer-involved shootings. Um, time, where it occurs, um, how many officers were involved, race and ethnicity, years experience of the officer. And a number of them provide this qualitative portion of, um, of the event. You know, they describe you know, how the officer and the suspect came into contact. They explain a little bit about the threat level. Um, so I think this is, this is a positive, a, a net positive that has occurred over the last few years is departments Maybe they're acting in response to the Washington Post and some of these other internet crowdsource uh, data sets, but they are posting more and more of their um, their data online on their websites for anybody to to view. Yeah, which is which is great to get out there, and I've noticed um, that even to get grants nowadays for police departments to whether it's acquire more time on the road for the patrols or another officer or equipment and materials the federal government is now basically even asking for this this data to put forward so that way from the sound of it they're probably going to do something similar whether it's quantitative or qualitative based on the grant is basically hold that department accountable for their information Exactly. And a, a really good source of information um, is the National Police Foundation's um, Police Data Initiative. If you go on their website and you, you scroll and try to find Police Data Initiative, they have, um, they have the data right there. You don't need to go searching for it um, agency to agency. Um, if, if the agency provides information on the race or ethnicity of 
stopped motorists or stopped pedestrians or use of force or officer-involved shootings, they have it right there on the National Police Foundation website. So a great place to start, um, or even just searching your, your local police department's website to see if, if they have it. And uh, of course, there's tremendous variation in terms of the data, the accountability, the transparency that those agencies provide. Yeah. Um, you know, just because the big city PDs have officer-involved shooting data isn't representative of the 17 to 18,000 police departments across the U.S. Um, if you look at small to medium-sized agencies, sometimes it's it's difficult to even find the name of the chief of police or some contact information, right. whether it be a phone number, an email address, let alone use of force data or officer-involved shootings. Yeah. Yeah, it gets, uh, gets tough as you get smaller. It's, I don't know if that's a, a level of accountability in the sense that happens where you know, you got several million people in New York and L.A., Chicago, that kind of thing, where you have maybe several hundred, possibly several thousand for a police department. And it's not technically, I guess, their top priority for the most part. But Right. Yeah. Um, one thing that I would add to in terms of what types of information police departments could start collecting and disseminating is um, how many times they are encountering a suspect who has any type of weapon, you know, regardless of whether or not that weapon is used. So one of the biggest flaws in, in the Journal of Criminal Justice's study is the benchmarks, the racial and ethnic benchmarks, were when an officer was killed, when they were seriously injured, um, nationally, when they were shot and injured or shot and killed in Texas, and whether or not uh, a citizen discharged a firearm in California. Hmm. And the benchmarks the, the base rates for those numbers are incredibly small. Um, but if, if those numbers were broadened and police departments captured the amount of times they encountered a suspect with a weapon in general, rather than just whether or not they used that weapon, mm. um, I think that that would get us to uh, a better benchmark because it's dealing with risk. You know, officers can shoot when a person does have, you know, a deadly weapon, not necessarily when they are using it on the officer. You know, an officer could encounter a person with a gun and they give instructions to drop the gun and they, they, they're not taking it and they could still shoot that person, but that would never be captured in the benchmarks that we used for our study, you know, mm. um, because they didn't kill the officer because they didn't you know, injure or kill the officer in Texas and because they didn't discharge that weapon in California. Um, right. We're dealing with largely, not largely, but flawed racial and ethnic benchmarks because we don't have the, the full picture of the threat level um, used against law enforcement. And if law enforcement could better document that, then I think they're in a better position to say, look, you know, we had 20 officer-involved shootings 12 of them involved African-Americans, but you need to take into account, you know, the level of threat that our officers are experiencing based on these different racial and ethnic groups. Hmm. Yeah, definitely something that I don't believe is captured across the board at all. Um, in terms of uh, just being here in New Hampshire, and I'm sure uh, New Jersey does a little differently, but you got uh, people that drive around during hunting season and they have it, uh, you know, the gun racks on inside the car are you considering that in a sense already a level of risk because you do have somebody you don't know who they are their frame of mind 
um, whatever other things are going on with that person for the day. But now you do have a deadly weapon that is uh, readily available to the, the person driving at that point if it was to be a motor vehicle stop. Right. Yeah. And I'm not sure how how you would incorporate things like that. You know, if they're on a rack outside of the car, you know, the, the citizen can't necessarily access it mm. as quickly. Um, but I do think that any discussion surrounding race, officer-involved shootings can't be had without talking about guns. You know, right. guns are the biggest threat to officers. I, I believe Frank Zimmering um, found that more than 97% of all those officers who were feloniously killed in any given year are killed by guns. That is the biggest threat that officers face um, and it leads them to, you know, see guns when they're not really there. You know, we often hear these descriptions of, you know, someone had an object in their hand or they were in, going for their waistband. But guns are the biggest threat to officers. And, you know, if, if there are problems where they, they see guns, you know, they have to act in a, in a split second. That, that's ultimately what they are the most fearful of. Right. It, it leads to a discussion of we need to think about, um, you know, who is carrying guns, whether it be legally versus illegally. Um, much more uh, research needs to focus on, you know, issues of guns in officer-involved shootings. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So risk assessment and that kind of threat level we discussed earlier in a sense. Exactly. Okay. So... Before we wrap up here, two more things. Do you have a, a, a call of action for those, whether it's within the criminal justice community, the the people who are doing the crowdsourcing, um, the general populace uh, of the U.S. and or abroad um, in terms of your studies and what you have going on? Yeah, so I guess my call to action for practitioners and law enforcement specifically would be to, if you don't capture good data currently, start capturing more and more data, make that data publicly available, um, start collecting information on you know, the threats that law enforcement um, encounters, the number of illegal guns that are, that are seized, um, because it, it just helps us get a better picture of the threat level that does exist out there. Um, be a true learning organization you know, for, for those chief executives and, and people in, in top management examine the data you know do you see a problem in terms of of officer involved shootings or police use of force more broadly um how does that vary based on the level of officer discretion and if you start looking at your own data through a critical lens you could start to solve your own problems or at least try to identify whether or not you do have a problem mm -hmm. um, collect more data make it publicly available partner with you know, researchers who want to collaborate with you, like myself, um, have an independent third-party evaluation if, uh, if, if you think that that's the best course of action. There's a lot of academics, young academics, who are willing to do that kind of work pro bono with the idea that there's a, a mutually beneficial relationship. The researcher gets access, gets data, the, the agency gets an evaluation. Maybe it's something that they can't necessarily do themselves because they don't have the analytical or the statistical skills. Um, so that would be my call to action for um, the practitioners. The call to action for people in the general population, 
view whatever you see, view these sources of data with that critical lens, think about the strengths, the weaknesses of those, those data sets, um, think about whether or not the sources of data have any type of bias, whether it be intentional or even unintentional. Um, try to verify what you do see with, with other sources, with other data sets to, to get a better picture of, of whether or not something is true or not. Yeah. Awesome. And lastly, then, what? how do any of these people reach out to you, whether they want to get in touch to get some uh, research done or even just go, hey, uh, I'm not sure about this. Maybe I need to reach out to somebody who knows how to read this uh, statistical measurement. How can okay. they reach out to you and consume what you've uh, the studies you've done and then maybe pick your brain a little bit? Right. So I, it's good that you brought this up because this is one of the biggest flaws in academia is, is we get judged based on peer-reviewed journal articles, <laughs> um, which are oftentimes firewalled and protected you need a university subscription to to access them which means that researchers at least in academia are largely doing uh, studies we're publishing them for our colleagues our other peers who have access to these these journals which means that the general population has a problem getting access as well as practitioners so one of my personal goals is to engage in public criminology it's to reach out to a broader audience. It's why I'm doing this, this interview with you um, to reach more people, more practitioners. Um, so I write op-eds in local newspapers. I have a, a personal website where I try to disseminate information. So if you want to get in touch with, with me, um, I do have a personal website. It's um, J-O-H-N-S-H-J-A-R-B-A-C-K.com. It's just my name. Dot com and it should have all my contact information, my Rowan University website, Google Scholar, ResearchGate. It'll have somewhere on there my email address. So um, pretty pretty easy to find. That's awesome. Perfect. Well, John, I appreciate your time here and uh, enlightening us with those studies. Um, and, and hopefully not only the law enforcement community that listens, hopefully they can share this as well with the general public to kind of give them a better overview of those studies and, and what's really being pulled forward and seen from those crowdfunded resources as well. I appreciate your time, John. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening to Neuro Knowledge Podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review and share it with all your friends and we will catch you next time.